This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and asked him a question. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, the man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman also died, much to her relief, no doubt. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. And the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed in the story about the bush where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God not of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all of them are alive. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can have a seat. I am coming closer to you. Good morning. It is um, so good to be with all of you. Welcome to church. Welcome to Christ the King. If this happens to be um, your first time visiting with us, um, welcome. We're thrilled to have you here. My name is Ashley. I'm the pastor here, and um, you're in good company. There are lots of great people as I look out at your faces. I'm uh, thrilled not only that you all are here, but that you get to, you get to uh, be together. It always excites me to imagine what the Lord might do with such a collection of good people such as yourselves, you know? And I don't want us, therefore, to underestimate ever uh, the reading of God's Word. For those of you maybe who are new to not only Christ the King, but this tradition, you're probably already noticing that, my Lord, they read a lot of the Bible. (laughs) That was a lot of reading all at once. And um, that's true. We do read a lot of the Bible. We're Anglicans, if you didn't know that, or maybe you saw it on the sign and you're not really sure what that means. That's fine. Um, We're all figuring this out together. But according to this tradition, the reason we read a lot of the Bible is because we believe that these words are like uniquely inspired to do something on their own, that actually all of this and this being like good and meaningful for you doesn't just depend on like how talented Jake is or how charismatic I am or how good the art is. Um, Talented those Jake may be, good as the art may be, that charismatic that I am. Thanks be to God there's something more available to us. And so we read these words and we submit ourselves to this tradition because we believe that God has invited us into a holy space and that his words are inspired and that his spirit is here to do more than we can ever ask or imagine. What a gift. Um, Also, the breeze is coming in in this weather. God does good things. So I say all of that to say, um, I don't know how much of the words of Jesus that you actually heard as we, re- as we read. Sometimes it takes a minute to, you know, like focus. Um, but I actually think that this moment that we have the opportunity to reflect on in Jesus' life is a really important one and one that's often overlooked 
and sort of like um, maybe understated even in its significance. So we're not going to reread it, but I am going to pray now and just ask the Holy Spirit to like help us uh, hear the words of Jesus this morning. Maybe I believe given that they are particularly timely and important. Uh, Holy Spirit, will you, Jesus, center us, Lord? Will you, Holy Spirit, give us the gift of hearing uh, Jesus? Will you help us, God? So much to be distracted by. So much, Lord, that we think and feel. So much running through our minds. So I just ask you, Holy Spirit, will you still us, Lord, and lay hands of peace on us so that we don't miss Jesus, so we could hear you, Lord. We put our lives on purpose, Jesus, in your path, hoping to experience you and encounter you. So be with us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. This text is so important to me um, because it is, among many others, of course, a reminder that... um, Our lives are meant to be marked by the way of Jesus. And like, we all know that. But I mean, really, my convictions and my lifestyle and the choices that I make and the things that I do are meant to be marked in some meaningful way by the person of Jesus. Who he was, what he did, his own convictions, his own lifestyle, my life mirroring in some way his life and his life being lived out through mine in ways that would mark my living as distinctly Christian, a little Christ, one who follows Jesus. And if ever there was a time in which I suspect a number of us feel really conflicted about what it means to be Christian, in days like these, it feels really hopeful to me to be reminded, no, it means something, though. It means something to model my life after the way of Jesus. It means something to submit myself to him, to choose to pattern my life after his. And he did it in a way that stood out. And this is one of those moments uh, for me. Two really distinct ways that Jesus' life stands apart from his culture, and I think ours, with respect to his convictions and with respect to his lifestyle uh, in this story. Convictions... Uh, in regards to his theological and political beliefs. Jesus stood apart from the major schools of thought of his day and the major political and theological parties of his day. They um, were more synonymous, or maybe they are as synonymous today as they were in Jesus' day. And yet Jesus was distinct from them, not able to like readily or easily align with any major school of thought or party. And we see that happening here. With respect to his lifestyle, Jesus was distinct, particularly because of his singleness and his views on marriage, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it's what he believed or didn't believe in terms of theology and politics that stood him, helped him to stand apart, made him stand apart. And his lifestyle, with respect to how he lived his life as a single and celibate rabbi at a time when every good rabbi was a married one. Why and how is the question. Did he stand apart? So I want to think about together his like political and theological convictions just for one moment, given that, um, I don't know, this week might be a particularly significant week for Christians to be thinking about our convictions with respect to those things. A group of Sadducees approached Jesus in order to test him, which is a kind of um, clue that they don't consider Jesus to be one of them or on their team. 
uh, Jesus stood apart from the Sadducees as he stood apart from the Pharisees. Both of these two groups were the like, major political and theological parties of Jesus' day. Uh, and they were, uh, very, they were very different uh, from one another. We've heard a lot about the Pharisees. Uh, if you've read in the Bible at all, you at least recognize that name. The Pharisees, I think probably for many of us, we assume that they are the fundamentalists of the Bible. Um, when you're reading, that's how they stand out. They seem particularly dogmatic and legalistic, and so easy to assume, well, they are the like, conservative fundamentalists of Jesus' day, um, which kind of isn't, isn't true, actually. Um, the Sadducees were considered to be the more conservative party, um, theologically and to some degree even politically speaking, um, for, here, for these reasons, uh, in short. Uh, the Sadducees uh, didn't believe in the resurrection, which is the reason that it comes up here kind of in this odd moment um, where they put this weird test to Jesus and then Jesus talks about the resurrection. They know that Jesus believes in the resurrection, and they don't. And that's because they didn't accept the, um, any of the scripture outside of the first five books of the Bible. So they only read the Torah, the first five uh, books of the Bible. They didn't read the prophets. They didn't read the writings. Um, and that's the part of the Bible that talk a lot about resurrection. Resurrection, um, just to say it as an aside, is not something that the Jews and the Christians started believing or thinking about just post-Jesus. Resurrection is a Jewish idea. Um, Jesus turned what we believe and how we think about resurrection on its head, just like he changed the way that Jews thought about Sabbath and keeping the law in general. But resurrection is a uniquely Jewish idea. I wish we had more time to talk about it. We just don't. But the Sadducees didn't accept it um, because they, very, they read pretty narrowly the scriptures. Um, they were also very temple-centric, meaning they believed in the institution of the temple. They wanted the temple to govern um, not just political and theological life, but like all of our life, meaning if we can save the institution of the temple, we'll all be righteous. I don't know if that sounds familiar. Like there might be some modern-day equivalent to that. You know, like if we can just get the institution right, it will make all of us Christian. That's the way we safeguard our faith. Um, and Jesus actually had a lot um, to say about the temple. He wasn't by any means temple-centric. If you, I don't know if you remember that moment where he went in flipping the tables and he made the whip, you know. Um, Jesus had real issues with the temple. He didn't actually believe that the temple would save God's people then or now. So he took issue with the Sadducees, and then we, of course, read over and over in the Gospels that he had issues with the Pharisees. I won't recount them to you. You know them. He thought they were hypocrites in their keeping of God's law. The point is, he just found himself sort of politically and theologically, we would say, homeless. Do you hear your friends say that? And maybe you feel that way. Maybe you've said that. I look at the major options around me in terms of ideology or conviction or belief, and it's like, I don't align there, I don't fit there, I feel homeless. And I just want to say, every time I hear it, I can't, it just like pangs me a little bit. Because to be Christian in the way of Jesus has always been to stand apart from the major schools of thought of our culture and the major political parties of our day. It just always has meant that. So I think your, your home is in the way of Jesus and that does mean that to some degree you are going to feel outside in other circles. And I would submit to you that if you don't feel outside, but you're able to look at any major school of thought or any major political party, and down the line, it's you. It matches. There's probably a challenge for you. 
because Jesus didn't fit. And I suspect then that it will be hard for us to. The kingdom of heaven, however, which Jesus talked about a lot, is inherently political. So it doesn't work to say, I'm homeless and therefore I don't care about politics. And please know, I am walking this as cautiously as I can. We don't know one another very well. You're never going to hear me say what you think politically doesn't matter. You're also never going to hear me tell you who to vote for. What you think politically matters. The kingdom of heaven was an inherently political idea. A kingdom is a political reality. It just is. Jesus died. He was executed as a prisoner of the state. Roman and Jewish officials killed him for his convictions about how to live. And so there is a part of our life that if we are involved in the life and way of Jesus will be inherently wrapped up in politics. That's just part of it. What we believe and think about those things matters. We don't get to opt out. That being said, I think what I would love is for us to be able to come together and just admit how overwhelmed by all of it we all feel. Because the alternative to not opting out is not to pretend that you know everything or that you have to know it all, or be it all, or get it all right, because you don't, and you won't. We're all learning and figuring things out together. What I wish for and hope for is lives that are increasingly marked by the humility of Jesus and the love of Jesus towards those with whom he disagreed. I want my life increasingly to be shaped by that, his posture, not just his ideas. They go hand in hand, you know? So, when Jesus said, for example, to Pilate, Pilate, of course, asked him if he was a king, which, can you imagine Jesus at the time? Jesus was bound up in chains, by the way. He'd been beaten by the Jewish authorities. He was bloodied, bruised, beaten, and his hands tied behind his back, tattered. And Pilate asked him still if he was a king. I will never get over it as long as I live. The kind of self-knowledge and belief in the goodness of God, the faith that it takes to look like that and still believe yourself to be the king of kings. To know who you are when you look so other than that. What a beautiful thing. And he carried it all right here. Knowledge of who he is. You have access to that same knowledge you and I can be bound and bloodied servants of the world on trial and still be heirs of heaven. What does winning look like for the Christian has always been a really tricky question. Jesus said in response to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. Which is not to say my kingdom is not of this world. I do not believe that Jesus meant I'm going to rule with the angels and disembodied places and people where I can rule there. Mm -mm. God made me in my flesh and bones. And in my flesh, Job says, my Redeemer lives. I shall see him with my eyes on this planet. This world belongs to him. The rule and reign of Jesus is for this world, this life. 
and one day I will touch him with these hands. I will spend my whole life for that chance. His kingdom is not, though, from this world, meaning I don't possess the authority, Pilate didn't possess the authority, the Republicans don't, the Democrats don't, nobody has the authority to give to Jesus to rule and reign. He put down his life, he takes it up again. And so with that in mind, I then figure out what it looks like to live as he lived, to love as he loved, and this is what I know. However his kingdom comes, whatever it means, we pray it every single week, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Here's what I know that it means. When I pray it, it is an invitation for the Holy Spirit of God to love people through my life in the way that Jesus lived and loved. And then in some small but not insignificant way, his kingdom comes. So you go vote. Go vote. With convictions that I pray have been shaped by the Holy Spirit. But after you vote, our prayer has to be, Jesus, help me to love my neighbor, those who have not voted like me, especially in the way that you do. They will know us by our love, Jesus said. It just takes a special kind of conviction to stand apart. That's what I'm saying. It takes time with God. You need to hear from him so he can tell you, let me, my love, who I am, define you. Be assured of your belovedness. You are the beloved of the Lord. The writer of Thessalonians says, that is who you are. You are the beloved of the Lord. So you can stand apart. It's okay. You are loved. That gets us to the second way in which Jesus' conviction shaped him in ways that were distinct and set apart, and that was with respect to his singleness, his celibacy. The Sadducees put Jesus to the test with this ridiculous hypothetical puzzle. I would love to have seen his face. Can you imagine? You're the creator of black holes. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever thought about that? This is God Almighty, creator of the universe. Is there a rock so big God can't move it? You know, it's like that sort of thing. So the Sadducees come to Jesus and they're like, hey, we got a question. This guy's wife, this guy, she, he dies. He's got seven brothers, all of them. She marries all of them, which of course she has to, but according to the laws of her day, the way that you carry on your husband's name is to marry his brother and have a child so that the name lives on and her life would have been given to the service of making sure that his name lived on. So not a hypothetical situation, it happened. But the question was, when we get to heaven, if there's a resurrection, you all believe in a resurrection, you're crazy enough to believe that one day we'll die and we'll live again, so whose wife will she be? Where will the dinosaurs play, Jesus, if there's a resurrection? I wish we had a lot more time to talk about resurrection, because I think it really, really matters what we believe about it. So did Jesus. Jesus says something, though, scandalously provocative. He says, actually, in the resurrection, those in this age marry and are given in marriage, but post-resurrection, when the resurrection comes, because they can no longer die, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. 
Of course, Jesus' assumption is that we marry in order to die to self. Marriage is one invitation in which we do that. It's an invitation to die for the love of someone else. That's what's good about it. But marriage is not, nor has it ever been, the ultimate aim for the Christian. In fact, for centuries, it was celibacy that marked the high calling and the devotion of spiritual leaders in the church. They understood that marriage is a sacrament, meaning that while we are away from the Lord, marriage is given as a kind of visible sign of an invisible grace. We are meant to see something that's spiritually real and true played out in marriage. It's a reminder that what we're meant for ultimately is communion with God. And the way that I practice for communion with God is to commune with you in sacrificial ways. I commit to you through fidelity and sacrifice. It shapes me so that I'm better fit for communion with God ultimately. It points to something beyond itself. It's a signpost. That's what's good about marriage. But singleness and committed celibacy in the way Jesus modeled it is also a sacrament and a signpost. It's a reminder that all my loves, all my wants, can never be and will never be ultimately fulfilled in another person. That our ultimate destiny is God and spiritual family. That in the resurrection, that's what will be. And I wish we could spend more time parsing that out. I don't think it will be like your marriage never happened. It's just like if what we believe about marriage is that it's a signpost, once you reach the destination, you don't need the sign anymore. You're there. And so in some way that I don't even begin to understand, I believe that God will take it all up into himself and we will be fulfilled. I will be able to love not only Josh, my husband, but you in the ways that I am meant to love you. Mystery that it is. But for those of you who are single... Here's what I believe we have not spent near enough time saying. You are also a sacrament. And whether you've chosen your singleness or found yourself in it, you need to hear more often than you have that your life is not a life in part. That you are not a half person. That you are not waiting on another human being to make you ultimately and fully who you are. You are the beloved of the Lord. And God's aim for you is to fill you ultimately with, him, with his spirit and himself. And if he pairs you with another person, great. Then you'll be a sacrament in another way. But I long for a world in which I can look out at single brothers and sisters in my life who remind me of the power of resurrection. That ultimately... What I need most is more of the like indwelling, life-giving spirit of Jesus in my life. I need that, and I need to look out at other people who can remind me of that. But we've spent so much time in the church encouraging people and pointing people explicitly or implicitly towards marriage as if it is the highest aim. I don't pray for my son's wives anymore. I pray that my sons will grow up to, Lord, to love their Lord, Jesus, with their whole heart and mind. 
that they will love God the way that their Lord Jesus did, that they will love Jesus the way that their brother Paul did. And should they marry, praise God. And if they don't, I pray that they will know a love that satisfies them beyond any that any other person ever could. We have idolized marriage, y'all. We have. And that does not mean that I don't love it. Again, we don't know each other very well, so every sermon, like, is another sermon. I love my husband. He's not here, which is worse. (laughs) I do love him. I'm very thankful for my marriage. I'll be in it for the rest of my life, God willing. But did you know on on my wedding day, you know what I said very purposefully? It's the reason I love liturgy, because the liturgy in my vows, I said, and I say every time I marry somebody, you will be married to this person until what? Until death do us part. Meaning whatever life I live on the other side is not in the same way. This this marriage is for now, it's a sacrament. It's meant to point to something bigger and more than just me and my needs and my wants. It's a gift in that way. What a gift. But we are doing ourselves and our single brothers and sisters a huge disservice in the way that we have idolized it. Channel the grace of Jesus and then hear what I have to say. It is the reason, y'all, that the gay community cannot hear us. They do not believe us when we say that our convictions around marriage are what's shaping where we stand. They know what we're against. They want to know what we're for. Do we really believe in spiritual family or not? Do we have a vision for family that would make room for people who never marry? And if the answer is no, we do not. We have not cultivated a vision that would make room for people who marry. Then don't ask people who can't marry to be happy about where you've asked them to be or the life that you've consigned them to. Jesus didn't. He was a celibate, single, and homeless man of faith. Not exactly your poster child for family values. Did he love family? Yes. Did he believe in it? Yes. Does it have its place? Yes. The New Testament's vision, New Testament's vision of family is one that is not defined by biology or ethnicity or class. It's a vision of family that has been created by a common love of Jesus and his Holy Spirit that reaches across all of those lines of difference in order to make some new kind of body and family. It's powerful. Y'all, I want my sons to have spiritual mothers and fathers, which means I need a Christian community that can model the way of Jesus for them that is not me and Josh. And if they never spend time with other Christians outside of this 45 minutes or whatever it is, it won't be enough. It won't be enough. I'm their mom. I can't give them Jesus in the way you can. I need you to be Uncle David. Do you know that I have friends who moved here with us from Atlanta? But here's a great secret. They are not my friends. They are spiritual family that the Lord has given to us that will mean and do mean as much to me as any family I've ever had. 
And to watch the Lord do that, what a gift. To expand our boundaries so that we become a sacrament of a better and fuller and more abundant kind of life. All that means for you is this. You have people around you who are meant to be at your table more regularly than they are. We've all heard the gospel comes with a house key. I actually don't recommend giving your house key out broadly and widely. I'm not that kind of person by nature. It's not my personality. But the way of Jesus has marked me in such a way that I know that my home and my table are meant for more than those who belong to my nuclear family. And that by God's grace, my sons will know family that is beyond their nuclear family. And I hope to God some of them aren't married. Because my sons may not be. Have mercy on us, Lord, and show us a better way. We get to love each other. We get to open our homes to each other and watch God do things that we didn't expect. What a gift. It's better than soccer, y'all. It is. This life will mark us and it will cost us, but as Isaiah has so brilliantly said before, it is a false dilemma. If I get to give up soccer and gain spiritual family for my kids, well, you know, woe is me, I guess. We'll figure it out. Jesus came so that women would no longer be passed around like old, used Honda Civics. Jesus came so that somebody would preach the good news of the resurrection to Sadducees in ways they could hear it. And Jesus came to set the lonely in homes. He came to give us family. And I'm thrilled to God to get to be here and be part of yours. Amen. Holy Spirit, help us now, Lord, to pray. To pray together, to pray in common. In Jesus' name.